All right, this week we have Madeline Varela, who is a cheese expert. She's going to give us the lowdown on everything cheese, from how it's made to the different milks that are used, why some cheese has a rind and others don't, and every other random question that I have along the way. So if you're planning on making a holiday charcuterie board, this is the podcast for you. There is a shocking amount of similarities between cheese and cannabis, from the appreciation of the craft to the dry and cure process of different cheeses. But before we get started on this episode, I want to say thank you to all the listeners because this is the last episode of 2023 and the last episode of season two of this podcast. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off to chill with family and relax, but we'll be back in January for season three. But seriously, thank you for helping rank this podcast consistently in the top 20 nature podcasts on Apple. Thank you for 65 star reviews and thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me. I love this community that we're building and I'm super thankful for all of you. For anyone who is a patron of this podcast, I'm going to upload the next nap time episode with Dr. Miyabi Shields next Friday if you want to listen before season three gets started. I'm also going to pull the winner of a secret giveaway that I've been running. I wanted to show some love to the people who have outwardly supported this podcast. So you have been entered to win if you have left a written review of the podcast on Apple or if you are a Patreon subscriber. I wish there was a way to include the people who have given a five-star review, but I can't see who has done that, so it's very difficult. Okay, now I'm not going to give away a car or anything crazy, but I do have some unique rolling papers from the Raw Factory, some Puffco accessories, some vapes, some rolling trays, etc. And I want to share the love with you. Okay, if your name is called, I will contact you to see what your favorite consumption method is and we will plan the prize accordingly okay so we're going to go to our random number generator and the number is 34 now let's go to our excel sheet number 34 is oj de la osa so i will be contacting you i have your uh, email and we will be in contact there so thank you so much oj for being an active member on the patreon mad love and now we will get into the podcast All right, cool. Well, welcome back to the Bioactive Podcast. Today, I am so excited because we have Madeline on and we're going to talk about cheese. So Madeline is a cheese monger and previously was a cheese maker. And now you make content that is um, on TikTok. I don't know if it's on other platforms as well, but it's really teaching people about cheese and all these different kinds of cheese and how to assess cheese. And I've definitely learned a lot. So I wanted to have you on the podcast so you could also teach everyone who listens to this podcast a little more about cheese because I can guarantee you that Madeline's going to teach you something today. So Madeline, if you wouldn't mind just giving a little more of an introduction of what you do in the cheese world, and then we'll talk about, you know, what started that love for cheese. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. So I'm a cheesemonger, which means I sell cheese. Um, but as you just said, I was first a cheese maker. So my background with the uh, knowing the knowledge behind the science of cheese making really helps me to be able to sell cheese very effectively compared to a lot of other people in the field, because I'm able to assess people what they like about a certain cheese and 
be able to introduce them to new cheeses that I feel like they will really enjoy on their palate. I love that because, again, there's so many similarities between cannabis and cheese. And I feel like the the cheesemonger is kind of like the bud tender where people (laughs) know that they have a preference towards something. They they know that I hate this cheese, I love this cheese, but they don't really know what's happening as far as like how that cheese was made, what kind of rind that cheese has, what the actual starting milk was like. And someone like you who is so highly educated can help kind of break this down and describe it to the the customer the consumer so then in the future they can start to learn what types of cheese they respond well to and which ones their palate is most um you know most in line with so i think that's um really interesting and also you know i wouldn't say everyone loves cheese but a lot of people love cheese right Mm -hmm. um so how at what point did you decide I want to make this my career. I want to make this my life. Like I love cheese so much (laughs) that I want to do this forever. So it first started out at a very young age. I had this real desire to be a farmer. I think the earliest memory I have was probably in preschool where we had to go. We did like a little picture book of um, things that we want to be when we grow up. And one of them was me as a farmer. And so, yeah, as I got older, I started figuring out what exactly what field I want to go into that because there's so many different things and I ended up landing on dairy because I'm a big fan of the dairy animals particularly goats Um, and that then led me to learn about all the different value-added products that we can make with their milk which obviously led to cheese which is most I would say a bit more difficult one to get into but the most lucrative out of all of them um, that you could do with the milk. So yeah, that's what led me to there. So I was probably about, I would say 16 when I thought for sure that dairy was the place that I wanted to get into and then particularly cheese. Cool. So at that point, did you uh, like shadow someone who was making cheese? Did you have a mentor that really kind of helped you walk you through that? Because it's not a simple process. It's not just like, I'm going to start making cheese. And obviously some types of cheese, and I think we'll get into this later, are a little Mm -hmm. more... uh, more accessible for people to try for the first time but some of the aged cheeses and the ones that really have a lot going on you I think a mentor is probably the the best way to learn so what was that process like absolutely so I started out I got a mentor um, her name's Lila from the uh, simple farm it's a very small um like very small farmstead in Arizona and Scottsdale actually what we would call like an urban farmstead Um, where I first got introduced to the animal husbandry side. And then that led into um, the cheese making. So I made my first, you know, batch of chev um, there in in the kitchen, as well as learning the caramels and stuff. And then as the years progressed, you know, I was fairly young at that point, I was just doing it part time. And then by the time I graduated high school, I went to a full time internship in southern Arizona at a ranch called Standalone Ranch where I learned much more about the cheesemaking process in terms of feta and stuff. And then as years go on, I typically stayed at these internships for about a year. So I started in Southern Arizona and then it led me to New Jersey, where I learned a lot more of the aged cheesemaking and a larger scale dairy. There was like, I believe like 500 heads of um, livestock there and a European style aging cave. And then I was in... um, New York, uh, Long Island, New York, and again, still continuing with the cheese making process, learning um, that on a commercial level. Awesome. So 
these different types of cheeses, like certain regions of the U.S. or the world are kind of known for a type of cheese. And this is kind of parallel to what we see in wine with the terroir of the yes. soil or if what we see in cannabis, which also has to do with the terroir and how that mm-hmm. plays into the final product. What is it about these different regions that are making cheeses uh, taste different? Is it just like localized expertise or is it something within that milk that is giving a specific flavor profile or, or smell or like, you know, what, what does that do to you? So, um, if we look at cheeses, like from the European countries, from old world countries, that the terroir is what makes that cheese, that cheese, essentially it's the microorganisms, it's the milk being raised on those regional, um, pasture lands. Like, you know, Conte is, um, made with Alpine style, um, made in the Alps with those Alpine metal meadows and those wildflowers. So it, it just depends. It really is regions plays a huge, huge process into that of what makes that cheese, that cheese. America forage of the animals is, okay, gotcha. So so the milk, yeah. So the forage, which again gets transferred into the milk, which then gets transferred into the cheese, but also the, just the little microbes that get picked up, um, say in the aging rooms and the processing plants that you wouldn't find anywhere else in the world because they're all so unique to that specific region. However, if you were to look at American cheese, it's a bit different um, because we really, as of right now, we don't really have too many rules. We're not really tied down by tradition. So you can do all sorts of different kinds of crazy stuff without too many constraints in terms of like condition, in terms of like history. And terroir does play a factor in it for sure, just with the different regions. Um, but we have a lot more leeway to be a bit more creative with our cheeses here in the States. Cool. I have questions on creativity, too, because, <laughs> you know, as a scientist, I think we're we we hold a lot of value in, in traditional ways of uh, doing science or producing a final product. But we're always wondering about experimentation. And with cheese, oftentimes with aged cheeses, they're aging for like a year, maybe maybe significantly more than that. So mm-hmm. experimentation must be really difficult because <laughs> like yeah. evaluating that final product, you can't just change variables every day and just, you know, hope to find what matters. It's like it's got to be like decades long to figure out the best ways yeah. to uh, age and cure these cheeses to to perfection yeah it it really is and a lot of it is a guessing game you know like we have some like really well-aged cheeses here in the states that can go up from like seven ten years and yeah you 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 don't really know what the end product is going to be like until those years are up i mean you know we'll they'll be doing some testing of the um cheeses throughout the aging process just to kind of see if it's the direction that where you're going but yeah it's just kind of like throw some stuff together use your knowledge and you know hopefully it all turns out uh, which most part for the most time it, it does um but yeah yeah it's a it's definitely an investment in time and money when you're creating new cheeses for sure and that's, I guess, I guess, kind of similar to the the wine or the whiskey uh, industries, or even cannabis, but on a slightly uh, smaller scale, a smaller timeline. But it just shows like the the passion for the craft that people are are willing to do that, put in the work, and then at the end of the day, they have a re- really unique final product that they're able to share with the world. Um, so thanks for that. Um, yeah. I want to kind of walk through the cheese making process. Um, And 
I am. I really am not an expert in this, so maybe you could walk through just what a a, a typical type cheese is that you think would be good to describe the process. But I know from from the milk to the final product, um, there's a lot that goes into it, and yeah. a lot of this also has to do with microbes, so bacteria and fungi, and how they play a role in that final product. Because as you were saying, the milk, whether it's from a sheep or a goat or a cow, that has its own kind of microbiota as well. But but we do have to pasteurize that typically, right, before we go into the cheese making. And then we introduce other microbes that might be more beneficial for the process. And then during the aging process, there's additional microbes. So yeah. uh, if you could just like kind of walk myself and the listeners through this sure, process, sure. it's it's a really beautiful process that brings in a lot of diversity. And I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it's really beautiful to, to know. So when we're eating cheese, we can appreciate all the work that goes into that. Yeah, of course. So in terms of pasteurization, which is how a lot of milk in the U.S. starts out, um, a cheese aged, depending on the state, if a cheese is aged past 60 or 90 days, it does not necessarily legally have to be pasteurized because by that time as it's aging, all of the potential harmful bacteria and things of that nature will, for the most part, die out. Um, But in terms of like uh, soft ripened cheeses, so like things like brie, humble fog, um, and then fresh cheese as well, like fresh goat cheese, um, those do have to be pasteurized because they're so young. They don't have enough time to um, have those harmful bacteria die out. Um, okay. But um, let's say if we are pasteurizing, uh, it will be more likely to be pasteurized to 145 degrees. It has to stay there for about 30 minutes. And then after those 30 minutes, it should have killed off anything harmful. And then we'll go and we'll bring that milk back down to, depending on the cheese, about 86 to 96 degrees um, to where it will be warm enough, but not too hot. So we can add our culture, which are bacteria that will go and help acidify the milk and basically bring the milk back to life. Is that always the same culture of bacteria like that is used or is that different depending on the different types of cheese? So there's, there's hundreds of different cultures that we can use. I guess the two groups that we can, um, uh, be the easiest to understand is the mesophilic, which is cheeses that are made on a lower temp, so that don't need to be as high. So those are going to be like at the 89 um, degree range. And then we have thermophilic, which are going to be bacteria that will thrive in those warmer environments that we see in like Parmesan and things like that. You know, those are going to be, be able to live in up to those 95 degree temperatures. Um, gotcha. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. And so... Usually let those guys sit for about an hour for them to go, you know, wake up, get everything going in there. And then we will go and we'll add our um, rennet, which is a enzyme. There's a couple different kinds. The most common kind are going to be animal rennet, which is a traditional rennet. That's actually where we got the whole idea of, you know, adding rennet to cheese to help make cheese um, because it's found in the lining of um animal stomachs, particularly like young, you know, calves and goats and and like that. And then we also have microbial, yeah. And then we also have microbial rennet, which that's a lab-based rennet, but it's also vegetarian, which is a big thing nowadays because a lot of people who are vegetarian are now realizing that not all cheese is actually vegetarian because it's made with that animal rennet, that animal byproduct. Um, So the microbial rennet is made in a lab 
It's about like a fungus, essentially. It's from a fungi. Okay, um, cool. So that's a great replacement for, for vegetarians yes. and allows them to eat cheese. And, and later we're also going to talk about um, lactose intolerant people. And there's some mm-hmm. cheeses that lactose intolerant people can eat too. So again, like these are things I think a lot of people don't know about cheese. There's vegan yeah. cheese, right? But is that really cheese? Is that a mean <laughs> yeah, question yeah. to ask? I don't know. No. <laughs> uh, it's a bit sacrilegious to me in, in, in my personal belief. But hey, you know, I don't don't cause too much shade to it, but yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll call it cheese substitute. It. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> um, so you have so your yeah. bacteria that are lowering the pH, and then you have your rennet, which is this enzyme um, from either a fungi or um, or an animal source. And and what is the the rennet doing here? So the rennet is going to coagulate the milk. So it's going to bind to the um, casein, the protein that's in the milk. And that's going to form up our curds. You know, have you heard of like curds and whey? So the whey is going to be the liquid, the kind of watery substance that is removed when we coagulate that protein and fat together in the milk. Um, Are the curds, like, if you get poutine in Canada and it's got cheese curds right on it, like, that's the curd from this process right here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So very similar. So those curds are, yes, it's the curd, but they've been been cooked. um, Oh, okay, okay. Which is what we see. It's basically... When we cook a curd, a lot of it is going in, is happening is going to be pressed into an aged cheese once it's cooked down. So those um, curds just haven't been pressed yet. But yeah, okay, that's cool, cool. What it is basically. Yeah. And is there a use for the whey, or is that discarded in the process? Is that kind of like a byproduct, or is there any way we can use that whey? So there's a couple of different things. I don't know of anyone that's currently doing this mainstream, but I have heard of people making like probiotic soda with it. I haven't personally done it. Um, and I've seen recipes for like whey caramel, which I've been tempted to try. I just haven't gotten around to it. And then also um, ricotta um, traditionally was made with whey, cultured whey. Um, nowadays it's, it's, it's typically either whole milk that they're making with it, or they'll add some cream in addition to the way to bring up that flavor, um, a bit, but yeah, okay. yeah cool. there's, there's ways to use it. It's not, not necessarily, I don't know of anyone that's necessarily using it on a commercial level yet. Yeah. Ways yeah. to use it. That's great. Okay. <laughs> I will try to stop interrupting you, but from the, the curdling of the cheese, what happens next? Yeah, so then we would go and we would cut that big curd because right now it's just like one solid mass inside of our cheese fat. And depending on what cheese we're making, we'll either cut the curd fairly big or not even cut it at all. We might just ladle it into a cheese bag or a cheesecloth, I should say, and that will drain. Or, and those are like used for softer cheeses like cream cheese and chevre. Oh, cool, cool. And is the texture at this point like like pudding is it like a yeah yeah, yeah okay. kind of custardy Custard, yeah i mean depending okay. on like how long we've let it sit yeah it's very it's kind of goopy and custardy things like that okay um but yeah so then we would go um if we're doing an aged cheese something that's going to be um stored for a long time in an aging room and pressed we would go and we would cut those curds up fairly small and then we would turn the heat up in the vat which is where we've had all our milk and everything in and we would go and heat that up and start to stir it and that will cook the curds to a point where they're pretty squishy 
um, but solid, like you can hold in your hand. It's not going to like disintegrate as you would before okay. um, it was being cooked. And then we would go and put it into a cheese mold. And we would then put that cheese mold into a thing called a cheese press, which commercially it's typically like a hydraulic press. You can fit a couple of wheels in there at a time. I and- will share a video of this because I was watching <laughs> them on YouTube and I'm like, yeah. I love watching this. You see so much moisture leaving it and then it comes out mm-hmm. in this like mm-hmm. beautiful mold. Oh, yeah. So cool looking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and then you would, depending on what you're doing with it, it will typically stay in there for a couple of hours. You'll probably flip it once or twice to make sure everything's even. And then once that's done, you basically have your young wheel of cheese. And at that point you can go and you'll brine it or salt it and then put it into an aging room, um, where it will go and age. And, you know, depending on your final results you're wanting, um, it can stay in there for a couple of months a couple of weeks to several years. Um, yeah. So, what man, I have a lot of questions about the aging room <laughs> because again, yeah. this is kind of, again, a parallel to cannabis where we have, you know, you have your flower, you harvest it, but then it's the dry and cure. That's the long part. That's really the science of what makes something a, a quality final product. And I think it's really similar with cheese. So you mentioned cheese caves earlier, and (laughs) it's like on my bucket list in life to visit a cheese cave, but that's more European, right? And now we have more of like modernized, um, you know, cheese rooms, but they must produce different products because some of the beauty of that cheese cave is the moisture level, the unique microbes that might be in that cave. How do they (laughs) replicate that sort of environment if you don't have a cave like if it's just in a in a room yeah so um we would go and we would we have like a system uh sometimes they're called cool bots there's different types of um, machines that will go and we will uh how should i say replicate the um environment of a traditional cheese cave that had been blown into the side of the mountain and is that literal cave and so that will adjust the temperature and the humidity and by then, things just kind of follow. We don't necessarily know how, like all these, this is a seemingly sterile environment, but somehow we have all these microbes and cheese mites start to take up residency in these places. And we don't necessarily know how they come, uh, how they end up in there. It's Even most better. Likely, I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's a mystery. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're still getting, there's still a lot of science going on behind it. We're starting to get a better idea. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just coming from the milk and from where the cheese is from, the boots that are being, you know, coming from outside and trekking stuff in to go and flip the cheeses and whatnot. But yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So so during the aging process, let's just say we're in a cheese cave because it makes me happy in my head to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um are these microbes that are present in the cave, are they, is there purpose to build the rind or are they like, you know, going into the cheese and adding to the flavor, the color, like really what's happening during that process? And do all cheese have, I know all cheese don't have rinds, but you know, um, if a cheese doesn't have a rind and it's still going through this process, are, are those the ones that have to be dipped in wax or, um, you know, how, how is that aging process different for these different types of cheeses and, and what is it doing? Yeah, sure, sure. So I guess let's start with my favorite natural rind. So natural rind is going to be hard aged cheese that's just going straight into an aging cave. We're not doing any wax. We're not putting anything on it other than 
um, brining it or rubbing it in a bunch of salt to help preserve it. And okay. so while it's sitting in there, you're just exposing it to air. And over time, the air is going to start to form a crust. And that crust is going to start to host a bunch of microorganisms and the cheese mites. And so those, yes, those help with the rind development as well as they start to help the flavor and then sometimes the color as well. But the flavor, I find natural rinds have the best, most complex flavor because they are basically a living thing at that point. Um, all those little critters are helping to um, give it that complexity that you wouldn't find in a typical hard like waxed rind cheese. And the smell's complex, too, which I think I, I love that part of it, too. Um, like, for me, like, the stankier the cheese, the better. I love yeah. really, really stanky cheeses. I understand mm -hmm. why not everyone does. Um, <laughs> but also, just, you know, can, do you always eat the rind? Is there any rinds you don't eat? I know a lot of people, when they have, like, a nice brie or something, will, like, scrape off um, the, the rind. I'm... I, I don't usually, I'll eat almost anything, <laughs> but I'd love your opinion on this too. So I, technically you can eat any rind that is not made of wax. Um, however, there's some that I don't necessarily like always suggest like mimolette. That's a natural rind cheese and it's fairly hard. It's very difficult to chew, but most okay. other times you can eat it. I mean, Hey, like, Sometimes people don't like the brie rinds. I personally love it. I encourage people to eat it. But if you don't like it, you know, that's fine. You don't have to eat it. Um, you know. Just wanted to make sure that they're okay to eat. Uh, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Choose, choose your preference. But For I sure. just wanted from an expert to say that it's okay to eat cheese rinds. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And basically, anything that's not waxed, you can eat. Um, whether it will taste that good, you know, just depends on your preference. Okay, so... Uh, cheeses that are dipped in wax, that's to avoid microbes uh, in, mm -hmm. coming into the cheese, correct? And we just want it yes. to age just via time and yes. maybe uh, moist. Well, no, I guess with wax, moisture wouldn't be a factor either, right? It's just time. Yeah, so time, I mean, over time, the, the moisture will just like naturally disintegrate. It's still going to be fairly moist um, compared to your traditional like hard natural rind cheese. But yeah, that's meant to be a little bit easier. Credit will, it helps require a little less like time and maintenance going into it. Cause like, you know, when we have a hard natural rind cheese, there's constant maintenance that has to go in it. You have to brush it and flip it, make sure nothing is getting too out of hand. With wax stuff, you can pretty much just like dip it in the wax, maybe flip it every now and then to make sure nothing's settling. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, kind of the easier route, not necessarily good nor bad. It's just, you know, a bit easier of a way to make cheese. Okay, cool. I have I have like literally a billion questions to ask you, but <laughs> I, I don't know if this was your TikTok channel or if I'm just on Cheese Talk, but <laughs> I think I saw a video about like New York cheese caves and there's this huge like, correct me if I'm wrong, if there's this huge amount of cheese that was like subsidized by the government and am I sounding crazy right now? Have you ever heard of it? No, 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 no. Okay. That is, um... Yeah, I'm like, so, oh no, I'm, like, I'm talking about something that does not exist. No, um, I believe they're in Wisconsin, not necessarily New York. That's it. New York, not it's familiar. Wisconsin. I was wrong. It's definitely Wisconsin. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not a hundred. I'm not like too well um, knowledgeable on that particular situation. But yeah, they were subsidized by the government, and now we just have all this 
cheese in there that they don't necessarily know what to do with. Um, it's like, just like sitting there hanging out. Like an absurd amount of cheese. I will yes, try to yeah, find. Yeah, like it was like tons and tons. <laughs> tons yeah. and tons and tons of cheese. I will try to find information on this and like add it in this podcast episode because one, I feel like I'm just like spewing misinformation, but I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad this <laughs> no, no, actually it's a real exists. Thing. Whoa. So I was pretty off, but this is still insane. This is referred to as, quote, government cheese, where there are 1.4 billion pounds of cheese stored in a cave in Missouri. The U.S. has the largest domestic reserve of cheese of all varieties, including cheddar, Swiss, and American. This all started in the 1970s when former President Jimmy Carter essentially wanted to give farmers a break by raising the price of milk, but the government couldn't just buy milk and store it. So instead, the government started to buy as much cheese as possible from farmers. This led to way too much cheese being produced, and eventually some of the cheese was distributed for food assistant programs, but the majority of that cheese still exists today in this cave in Missouri. Anyway, this rabbit hole goes a lot deeper than we can cover on this podcast, but I'm going to also attach a news article in the show notes if you want to learn more. Okay, okay, okay. We'll get back to talking about the actual cheese. But <laughs> so my husband loves goat cheese because it's so, so sweet. He definitely has a sweet tooth. And I love goat cheese too, but I love all kinds of cheeses. <laughs> How does the like actual animal product, if it's coming from a sheep or a goat or a cow, do these different milks have just different levels of sugar or are they, again, just like, are they made up of different constituents or why do these different cheeses taste different from these different sources of milk? Yeah. So in terms of sugar, the lactose, they're all relatively the same, but the the fats is a big differentiator, differentiator between each milk as well as the actual protein makeup. So I know okay. you were mentioning goat milk. Um, that protein is actually very similar to that of human milk. So, it, yeah, it tends to be people can attribute to be a little bit sweeter, um, okay. very like thinner. Um, it also a lot of people who have, you know, milk allergies in terms of uh, the pro a pro specific protein allergy, they can eat goat's milk um, because it's so similar to human's milk. It's much easier to digest. Whoa, and, I did not yeah. know that. That is so yeah, yeah. informative for people who are sensitive um, to, yes. to these cheeses. Thank you. Yeah, and a lot of people attribute that protein allergy to just being lactose intolerant in general. And really, it's it's fairly common for it just to be a protein problem that they have, not necessarily an allergy to the lactose, the sugar, and the milk. Because a goat's milk does contain a, a good amount of lactose in it. Um, but yeah. And I don't, I feel like I have had. Um, like sheep's milk cheese too, um, but I I don't remember what is that flavor profile like. Is that more similar to one or the other, or unique so, in itself? Sheep's milk is pretty unique. I love sheep's milk. Um, I first had it like straight sheep's milk when I was like twenty, and I thought it was heavy cream because it's so rich in fat. It's gonna have the mm. highest butter fat content between goat and cow milk. It has like a seven percent butter fat content. While goat and cow milk have between like a four and a five percent, so it's super rich and creamy, fairly sweet, a little floral. Um, yeah, it makes the perfect soft ripened cheeses as well as fresh cheeses. You know, Pecorino Romano is also made with goat with sheep's milk, um, but yeah, it's one of my favorite milks to work with. 
Oh man, okay, that's I gotta go. I I live in New Hampshire, <laughs> which is right next to Vermont, and I just yeah. saw you make a video about one of your favorite cheeses that's in Vermont, and I'm like, okay, this weekend oh, yeah. I I am taking a road trip, so <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited about sure. that. Um, so just some of the terminology we use that I. When I say we, I mean you use, and I'm trying to learn from you to use this terminology as well. Um, you know, you mentioned like Munster is a wash rind cheese. And for a lot of people, they don't like Munster because of that fact. So mm-hmm. when we're trying to really learn what cheeses we like, which ones we don't like, what what are other, like, what is a wash rind cheese? And are, are there other categories that we can kind of disseminate for people that can help yeah. them them learn what cheeses they, or even like, what cheeses you should try when you're trying to understand what cheeses you like, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay, so cool. um, I find there to be, like, three main categories in terms of, like, rind and cheese. So natural rind is going to be your hard-aged cheeses with that natural rind that was exposed to air. There's soft-ripened or bloomy rinds, which are going to be, like, the breeze. Then there's washed rind. Washed rind is a pretty unique rind because – Technically, it's a natural rind, but as it's aging in that aging room, it's being washed in a brine solution. And so it's not having that opportunity to dry out completely that we would see in like a harder natural rind cheese. And so that is going to open up um, an environment that is hospitable for these bacteria that cause um, that stinkiness, like you were saying. So in terms of like Taleggio um, and the Poise, those types of cheeses. And the interesting thing is a lot of these cheeses are going to have the same bacteria that lives on people. Um, Most commonly bee linens is the bacteria. um, And that causes that stinky foot smell on people. So whenever you- I did not know that. That, So that's why some people have such like a repulsion Mm -hmm. to that cheese because they they literally are associating with human stinky feet because it's the same bacteria. Yeah, yeah, that's why you have a lot of people say, oh, this cheese smells like stinky feet. I'm like, well, technically it's, you know, kind of made up of the same stuff that causes us to have stinky is, feet. Is that because, like, the humans are making the cheese and leaving behind their bacteria and it's, you know, integrating into the bacteria, into the cheese making process? So sometimes it does just naturally pop up. But nowadays on a commercial level, we know what we want to achieve in that end product of cheese. So we can actually inoculate that bacteria into the brine solution. So as we're washing that cheese, that bacteria is getting on it with the brine solution. Um, so yeah, that's more common is that we're actually intentionally adding it in there because we want smelly cheese. I see. I see. That that makes a lot of sense. And when you say wash, is it like wash once or it's wash, let it sit, inoculate, wash again, let it sit? Is this like a continuation so depends, of a process? It depends on what you're looking for. But yeah, most of the time it's it's washed repeatedly until like the last several weeks of it going out where we do kind of want that rind to cut, kind of harden and not be super sticky and gooey. Um, but yeah, it's typically washed repeatedly throughout the aging process. Okay, cool. So the the composition of that rind really is what determines these different categories and how they smell and how they taste and how they yeah. cut and in what how we serve them. And actually, I think this this kind of goes really well with a question that I got from someone on my Patreon account from Melissa Townsend. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask this at the end, but I think this is a good time. Um, sure. If you were building a charcuterie board, what are three to five cheeses that you would 
absolutely include to make sure that it's diverse and also like hits the palate of most people that are attending this party. Gotcha. Yeah. So number one, I'm always going to do Manchego. I typically go from Manchego between three to six months because those are going to have the best, most easygoing flavor profile, super buttery, nutty, little tangy, fairly sweet. So that's my number one pick always. Um, I love Prairie Breeze Cheddar by Milton Creamery. Um, I believe they're in Iowa. That is a sweeter cheddar. Um, fairly dry. I believe it's aged for about nine months. So it's super crumbly, lots of crystallization. has these really pronounced notes of like pineapple. I love it with like some uh, candied pineapple on the side of the, mm. on the side of the cheese board. That yeah, sounds, I've never favorites. added that to a cheese board. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um, and then I love um, Delice de Bourgogne. That is a triple cream cheese from France by Linset, from Marjorie Linset. Um, so that's basically, it's like butter. So it's a soft mm. ripened cheese. So it has that mushroomy rind. And then right in the middle of the paste, I just lay it paste side up onto the board and just stick a knife right in right into the middle of the paste and just have people scoop it out as the day goes on spread it on their crackers <laughs> yeah i love the way you describe cheese i could like <laughs> you could have a podcast or like a youtube channel you just literally just describe the cheeses you're eating and i guarantee a million people would watch it it's amazing <laughs> thank you um but yeah, and that one's a very easygoing one, too, in terms of, like, Lumi Rhine cheeses. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. Is, are there any other, like, sides? that I think the, the pineapple is a great addition. Is there anything else that you would include in that board to make sure that people get the best experience? Yeah. So I love, like, sweet with all of those cheeses. So, like, a fig jam, a cherry jam. Um, even like a pear, like compote was, are really nice with those. Fig jam is probably going to be the easiest to come by though. And then I love a little bit of crunch to it. I always have to add a bit of crunch to my cheese boards. So I'll either do, um, Marcona almonds, or if you have people with a nut allergy, there is a, um, a thing called Kikos, which is basically a big airy corn nut. Um, so okay. they're not going to break your teeth like the stuff you get at the gas station. And they're cooked in sunflower oil. So it's a safe um, option if you know anyone that's going to have a nut allergy at that party. And okay. also like some fresh fruit. Like you can never go wrong with um, grapes, blueberries, figs, any anything really will go well with that in terms of fruit. Cool. Thank you for that. And so you mentioned yeah. a triple creme cheese. Is this meaning you're taking milk from three different sources. This is your your goat, your sheep, and your cow, and you have all of them together into one cheese that's making this like really diverse flavor profile. So actually, so that would be called a triple milk cheese. So a triple, triple milk. cream. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so a triple cream cheese is actually going to be all cow milk, and you're going to have at least um, 75% butterfat content added to it. So we're adding a bunch of cream to that milk during the cheese-making process to enrich it. And that's going to give it that super creamy, buttery, oh. luscious milk taste. So, okay, so your starting material instead of, like, whole milk is mm -hmm. whole milk and cream. Yep, Exactly. Wow. I just learned that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Do you have anything that you definitely want to talk about that's relevant to the cheese world that you think is like fun and um, definitely should be included here? Um, I mean, 
I think we're kind of going over a lot of cool stuff. I think cool. just letting people know that cheese is for everyone. You know, they said cheese for everyone's liking. Cool. And again, like, I, I think that is the the beautiful thing about cheese is that it comes in yeah. such a diversity of different flavors and types and textures. You can't just say, like, I don't like cheese because yeah. have, have you tried, you know, 500 <laughs> Jesus? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. What do you think the best cheese is for like a picky cheese eater? Like what is the most like mild? I, what is the one called that? Um, it's not Munster. Uh, Jarlsberg. I don't think it tastes like anything. Um, it's like, yeah. it's, it's like a Swiss type cheese. Yeah. I tried, yeah, like I tried it for the first time and I was like, is this, is there something <laughs> here or am I just like yeah. eating air? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So Jarlsberg is a nice one. Um, Havarti, I would say, is, you know, pretty plain Jane, pretty smooth, tender texture, too. That's pretty agreeable for most people. Um, Manchego, too, is one that I always recommend if you're wanting, to, like, a little bit of an elevated step up because that's made with the sheep's milk. So it's going to be fairly sweet and nutty and buttery. Again, I would stay within that three to six month age range and not ne necessarily anything up higher than that. Um, because they can tend to be, take on a bit more complexity. I personally like it, but for beginners, um, start them off a little bit easy, I would say. Okay, cool. Uh, do you ever judge cheeses like professionally at cheese events? Are you ever a judge? And I, I'm asking this specifically, um, because again, I love the way you describe it. And is there a process that goes into evaluating a cheese? Are you, you know, are you trying it? in a certain way are you smelling it first are you eating it first are you pairing it with anything do you have a palate cleanser between cheeses I'm just I'm just curious what like the, the judging is like because with a lot of natural products whether it's uh, other foods or whether it's cannabis or with other natural products there's there's usually kind of a distinct process that goes into it so I'm curious what that's like with cheese yeah so I personally have never been a cheese judge for a competition yet um hopefully one day um, but I guess my process when I'm first tasting a cheese and um, personally judging it, I always start out with the smell. Smell is going to be your first thing that you're going to go with. Um, it's, you know, basically the first thing you, you experience when you're eating something. As well as I also look at the appearance, like is it tender, is it smooth, is it a little bit coarse, is there crystallization in it? And then I go on and I actually taste the cheese and um, just let that go and sit in my mouth for a little bit. And then um, go from there and pick up all the different notes and nuances that are attributed with that specific cheese. Do you find that your nose can typically detect what cheeses you're going to like the best? So in, in the cannabis world, we call this the nose nose, meaning if you, <laughs> smell, if you smell a flower and it reacts really positively to your body, that means that you're probably going to like the feeling after consuming that flower because your body, you know, your nose has over 400 different receptors in it and you're... It, they are part of your body's immune system. Just your, your body has the same receptors. So the question is, when you smell a cheese and you say that smells absolutely amazing, do you typically find that those are the ones that react best on your taste palate as well? Yes, for sure. I mean, and I'll try cheeses. I particularly love um, the kind of mushroomy smelling cheeses or cheeses that smell a little bit sweet. So if I get like notes of like orange blossom and honey I know that I'm this is going to be a home run for me 
And then even with like the more um, mushroomy type scents, if I'm smelling a soft ripened cheese that has that nice white mushroomy aroma, I'm pretty confident I'm going to like it. <laughs> awesome. So I think a lot of, well, I should say a lot of people hate blue cheese because it's um, it's a little more aggressive than maybe some <laughs> of the other ones, right? Yeah. Not just the smell, but the look too, right? Typically when we see like a, a blue or a dark mold that's a little off-putting to us. Um, so what what would you say of like cheese is mold? Is cheese is cheese mold? Is some cheese mold? And how do we make sure that the the right mold is getting into something like a blue cheese to make sure? I, I don't know if I'm asking this question correctly, um, but no, no, you, okay, cool. If you wouldn't mind talking about cheeses like that, whether it's whether it's blue cheese or, or something similar in nature. Yeah. So in terms of is cheese mold, like in general, it definitely, almost all cheeses mold is going to play a big part of it. Whether you're just a natural rind and that mold is helping with that rind development or a soft ripened cheese like a brie, you're going to be adding that penicillium candidum, geotrichum candidum. Um, those are all mold slash yeasts that um, cause that rind and then blue molds you have that penicillin rook 40 and other types of blue molds so yes uh, most cheese has mold involved in it um, in terms of making sure we have the right mold going into it I would say cheese made at a commercial level whether you'd be a small mom and pop dairy or we are a big giant corporation that makes thousands of wheels you know a week um, we have the U.S. the in the U.S., we have some of the strictest regulations in terms of dairy and um, and cheese in general. So I would never feel like uncomfortable eating a cheese that I know has come from a, um, a dairy here in the U.S. because it's so stringent. There's constant milk testings. That, um, that was my next question. Like, so if it's yeah. highly regulated, what kind of testing goes into? to cheese are they testing throughout the whole process are they testing the final product are they testing the starting material like what's that like and is that testing cost on the cheese manufacturer to pay for that testing or is it the government um, kind of just comes in and these regulatory agencies are doing this as a due diligence yeah so it's going to take place pretty much throughout the cheese making process with milk with the raw actual milk so like say when i was working on these farmstead dairies um, we'd have our inspectors come and they just take milk right out of our um, cooling tanks before we even had a chance to pasteurize it. That's just been milk from the animal as well as the pasteurized milk. And then, yes, we will they'll take samples of the final product of cheeses. In terms of is this paid for, um, just from my experience, it is it had the, the state pays for all those testings. However... I, every dairy that I worked for and every dairy that I'll ever, I've ever talked to, they will pay for their own separate testing just in case, you know, you never know what happens. Like something can happen at those labs that the inspector takes them off or they don't handle it properly. So you, you typically will pay for a second private testing. So like we sent all of our, all of our stuff when I was in New York, we would send our stuff off to Cornell and they would test it just in case if the state came back and like, Hey, there's this, we can go and we can show them our test results and be like, something something happened here. It may not necessarily be our problem. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily come out of the farmer's pocket, but it typically they'll do a backup test as well. 
Right. And I mean, I'm sure they want the best quality product yes, they possibly absolutely. can have. So that's just mm -hmm. a cost. That's part of the process. Yep. And you also just got me thinking about, um, you know, testing the starting material again. And this kind of goes back to our conversation in the beginning. Is almost all cheese made from animals that are pasture raised because of that added taste that comes from the forage? Or have you noticed a difference in taste from animals that are pasture raised versus not pasture raised? Is that something that's detectable on the palate? Yeah, so for me, I'm pretty able to detect it pretty quickly, even just by the appearance of it, whether even if it would be from milk, winter milk or summer milk, you can tell when an animal has been raised in the pasture because of the color. It's typically a more vibrant color. Um, it's, so not every cheese is going, not every animal that makes the cheese is going to be raised on pastoral lands. A lot of times, well, not a lot of times, I guess. It's a bit of a generalization, but there is a good amount that are, you know, fed um, dried hay and grain um, in different facilities. But I would say the best cheese comes from pasture-raised animals. Um, they're typically the most happy um, and the most uh, have the best nutrition out of all of them. Awesome. Thanks. And you mentioned color. So if you go and you're choosing these different cheeses, you might see a a gouda that's like a dark orange or a cheddar that's a darker orange where a lot of cheeses are that really light colored, um, you know, yellow. Is the color always produced naturally during this process or is color ever added during the process to kind of add in that visual appeal of the cheese? Is this different depending on region? What's what's that like? Um, so it's just going to depend. Um, a lot of, so like in terms of cheddar, when we see like an orange cheddar, that is going to be added during the cheese making process. That okay. is used with a natural color from the annatto seed, um, which is um, used in like cooking a lot, but that gives it that bright orange color. So it's not like red dye 40 or anything, at least right. with like natural cheese that I can't speak for like craft singles or anything. Um, I was going to bring up craft singles earlier. I'm like, <laughs> is this technically cheese or is this like um, cheese? <laughs> I'm not too sure about that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. When you have like bright orange uh, colored cheeses like mimolet or cheddar, there, yeah, it's gonna have like that added coloring to it, but it's not a chemical. It's just like a natural extract from a plant. Um, in terms of other cheeses, when you're looking at cheese, if it's a bright yellow or like have a yellowish color, that's going to be um, cheese that was made with milk from the summer month from pasture raised animals. If we because of the beta carotene um, that they from the grass that they'll eat, and that beta carotene goes into their milk, um, and that then gets transferred into the cheese, which we get that bright yellow color. In terms of like wow. when we see, yeah, so yeah, it's cool. really cool. Beta carotene is like one of my favorite molecules to draw. Not to get into too much detail here, because <laughs> it has it has such a like a long conjugated system, meaning it's double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, and that conjugated system is the reason why it presents itself in that color because it it can provide light in that way. But okay, we we won't talk about that too much. But yeah, that's so cool. It's from beta carotene. Yeah. Yep. 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 So yeah. And like going back to like the best, um, milk comes from pasture raised animals that you can just see it in the, in the cheese. Um, you know, they're out in the grass eating all of those natural, um, wildflowers and brush and everything. And so, yeah, it's, you can definitely see that in the end product. 
Well, that's beautiful, too, that you can also choose your cheese based on color, knowing yeah. this information. That's mm-hmm. that's awesome. So thank you for all this information. You used to make cheese. Do you still make any cheese at home in like small batches or do you um, do you help anyone making cheese? Are you still part of that process at all? Yeah, so I do make some cheese at home. I'm still I don't have anything to make my age stuff yet. Um, it's a bit of like a, a cost that I don't have the money for yet, but hopefully will soon. Um, but I really enjoy making fresh ricotta. That's going to be one of the easiest homemade cheeses to make, uh, along with some fresh cultured butter and then also mozzarella I like to make at home too. Okay, cool. I, I know from just like watching other people that these are relatively easy to make, but if myself, I'm going to do this like this weekend, so that's why I'm saying people like myself. If people <laughs> like myself wanted to do this, is this something you just recommend like Googling or finding a YouTube video or is there other resources for cheese making that, that you would recommend that you use or do you produce any um, information on this to help people? So one of my favorite places to get like at home cheese recipes is going to be from New England um, Cheese Making Company online. Um, they have really easy to follow recipes and like every single recipe you could ever imagine. They still add more and more um, every year. Um, so they're a really, really great resource as well as like getting started with home cheese making. They have everything you'll need. They have all the, cor- the cultures, the rennet. Um, the different testing kits, um, the actual equipment to make the cheese at home. Um, so that's that's my number one um, resource I always recommend to people um, if they're wanting to get into at-home cheese making. Cool. And are you in New England, just out of curiosity? No, I'm actually in Cleveland. Cleveland. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm in New England. So that's oh, okay. Um, that's really cool. And, and as I mentioned, like I'm next to Vermont and I, yeah. I, I love Vermont cheese. Uh, my friend and I did like a – a cheese and weed tour through Vermont and it was like <laughs> yeah. the best day of my life it was amazing and um yeah just the farmers the pride that they take in mm-hmm. in those products is so fun to see and how the different farms are producing these different types of cheeses and talking to them it really is amazing and it really is an art it's it's absolutely yeah. beautiful absolutely yeah and I I think Vermont has some of the most um wonderful um, artisanal cheese scenes that we have in the country currently, along with Maine um, as well. Cool. I'll have to check out some <laughs> Maine cheese as well. I wonder if there's any caves around here, um, any cheese caves, because I'm they're, trying they're to find them. Be. Yeah, yeah. Vermont has up. to have them. They have I'm to sure. have a couple cheese caves. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would think so. All right, cool. So I'm definitely going to try to start making cheese. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know – can you infuse cheese with different things? And I'm, I'm obviously my head's going to cannabis, but like, let's say, <laughs> let's say you wanted a rosemary infused cheese. Is this something that you could pretty easily do during the process? Because, um, you know, cheese is fat loving and oftentimes mm-hmm. these active compounds from plants are also fat loving. So yeah. you would think they would kind of mesh together pretty easily. Is this something you've seen? Yeah. So um, it's it can be fairly easy to infuse um, very, all sorts of different kinds of things into cheese. Um, in terms of rosemary, the most common stuff we see is actually being rubbed onto the rind. One of, some okay. of my favorite cheeses is Wild Rosemary by Goat Rodeo um, in uh, Pennsylvania. They have um, a fantastic olive oil and dried rosemary rubbed um, cow and goat milk cheese. Um, and yeah, so it's very easy. You can infuse mustard seeds. You can infuse different types of fruits into cheese. 
Um, it just depends on what you're, what, what form you're going for. Like in terms of that, like if you're going to do like a dried fruit, um, which part you'll add it into the cheese making process. Typically I would say it's going to go in once you dry the curds and then you press it. Um, in terms of, uh, cannabis, that's, it's funny because we just, Cleveland just legalized, um, that, uh, conversation came up at work, uh, a couple of times so far. And I think in theory, you should be able to, um, I honestly think the most practical way would be to like, actually, like how I was saying wild rosemary, how they do an olive oil rosemary rub cheese, maybe rub the oil and if, instead of the olive oil, rub the um, oil with some type of stronger herb like rosemary, make it taste good. I think that might be the most practical way. Um, as of right now, I don't think anyone does that on a commercial level, maybe some at home um, people do. But I'm yeah. just saying there's a market for it. And if that's <laughs> I, something I, your, I your team is trying to explore, like <laughs> I can help you work on any of that too. But like there's a massive market for that, um, especially in like the craft world. Like cheese, sure. craft cheese is such an important um, sector of the cheese industry, right? Like that's super unique, mm -hmm. super special, small batch. And same thing with cannabis. And people want that, uh, you know, really unique experience so it, it could be a yeah. really cool place to expand yeah. I, I agree from things i get at work i i think there is definitely a market there for it for sure maybe that'll be something i look at in the future i hope you do let me know if you do i'm just so interested okay. absolutely um we're just gonna wrap up with a few questions just about kind of looking forward in the future and before I move on to these questions, is there anything else that you want to say about uh, cheese and the importance of cheese and, you know, what people should know about cheese before we kind of wrap up the episode? So I think one of the most important things is that nowadays we really have to continue to support our local artisanal cheesemakers. Um, go to your local cheese shop, specialty grocery stores. Um, look for that American-made cheese because with the pandemic, we saw a lot of um, – closures in the artisanal cheese world, um, unfortunately. So um, just continue to support your local cheesemakers and cheesemongers here in the States. That's such a good point. And I didn't even think about the impact of the pandemic on mm -hmm. cheesemakers. So thank you yeah. for bringing that up. And I'm sure all the cheesemakers appreciate you bringing that up too. Also, oftentimes these small artisanal cheeses made in America are also some of the best cheeses. So yes, you also absolutely. benefit from it. For sure. <laughs> Cool. So uh, what is your favorite thing about your job? And you can say it's eating cheese all day or you can say <laughs> something else. Um, yeah, that's definitely a big one. Um, just being able to try cheese from all over the world, like every day. Um, but also, you know, being able to talk to people about cheese, you know, when people come up to our counter, just asking them, you know, what do you like? What do you don't like in your cheese? And to be able to find the best cheese for them. And then a lot of times I have people come up sometimes the next day or the next week and say, man, you really helped me a lot with that. Like, I can't believe you just know exactly what cheese I would want. That really makes me feel good. I bet it does. And you're like, you're also kind of building community too, not just with them coming to you and trusting you with that process, but then they take that cheese and they bring it to their friends and they say, I went to this 
wonderful cheesemonger and she taught me xyz now everyone's learning about cheese and you really you sparked that interest and you also gave them the time and the education to teach them about it instead of just saying hey this cheese is great most people love that like try it out come back if you hate it you know whatever yeah it's cool that you take the time for that thank Um, you yeah so what is in your five-year plan with cheese do you want to keep doing what you're doing do you love where you're at or do you want to expand into different worlds of cheese i think you mentioned did you mention at some point you went to like a cheese conference of some sort so yeah so i've been to a couple in terms of what like is that like too? <laughs> you know they're really fun because it is it's a, it's a big community you know like no one really in terms of like american cheese world no one's actually competing with one another it's just one big you know family here for the most part and you know can try different cheeses picking people's brains that are in this world um and just you know talking like-minded people cool awesome (laughs) and i feel like are they like usually in the cheese hubs like wisconsin and vermont or are they kind of just everywhere all over um i mean i've typically i've been to some in upstate new york but yeah there's some in wisconsin um portland um yeah like that all right, cool. Um, so last two questions. Well, one's actually not a question, but your favorite cheese of all time. And if you can give as much description as possible, would love that. And then also just shout out your social medias and how people can find you, contact you, stay up to date with all your, your cheese and around on the internet. And uh, that's it. Gotcha. So I think my favorite cheese of all time has got to be Negroni. Um, it's by a cheesemaker, Sergio Moro. They're in Italy. It's a blue cheese that's soaked in gin, um, bitters, and uh, vermouth topped with candied orange peels. Wait, it, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Wait, how can, it, how can it be soaked in alcohol? Would that kill all the microbes that are a part of the process? No? No. So at that point, um, once the, the cheese has been pretty much aged to completion, and at that point, he's going to go and just pour it into these big, big barrels and have them sit in there and absorb in all that alcohol. And it's, you know, you get those like awesome botanicals from the gin and the bitters and you get that sweetness from the vermouth and the candied orange peels. It's it's really incredible. I'm kind of like a Sergio Moro stan. I love all his cheeses, but that one in particular is super special. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds so <laughs> diverse on your palate. Like it would hit like every part of your, your palate. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> cool. Okay, cool. And where do people find you? So I'm mainly on TikTok. So my account is Cheesy Talk with Madeline. It's C-H-E-E-Z-Y-T-A-L-K. W-I-T-H and then M-A-D-E-L-Y-N. I'm also on Instagram. Not as much on Instagram, but I'm going to try posting more on there um, in the future with the same um, username. Cool. Thank you. And I, again, like the reason you're on this podcast is because I love watching your content. And you. you can learn a lot just from seeing how you describe the different cheeses, the different ways you cut into the cheeses, uh, whether it's, you know, with, with the wire or with a knife or whatever yeah. it is. Um, you, you're just really a wealth of information, whether it's you describing it or just observing you. So I appreciate you putting all that content out there and Thank teaching you. your passions with everyone because it's definitely uh, it's definitely catching on and it, it, makes, it makes me really happy yeah. to see that content and your passion behind yeah. it. 
I really appreciate that. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it. And that's why I do it, you know, to share my love for cheese and to also educate people. It's, you know, one of my um, coworkers that works at this store, she's not in my department, um, but she works in an apartment next to me. She's like, man, it's really, cheese is like a religion. There's so much to know. I'm like, that's kind of a good way to put it. Yeah, they, there's so much to know and there's so much we're still learning about it as well. And and it's beautiful that it does require different palates and different experiences and like mm -hmm. tasting a cheese can kind of bring you back to a specific moment. I think that's kind of the beauty of natural products in general because they're so diverse and so specific to people. It kind of gives mm -hmm. you that like additional connection to that product. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on. I really enjoyed thank this you. conversation. Yes, me too. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.